I'm calling the sermon this morning, Gospel Transformed Relationships within the church and outside of the church, because I think that in that text that was just read, we see examples of how we relate to people in both camps, those within the body of Christ who are brothers and sisters in the Lord, and then just generally with others uh, in the world. Um, you know, let me, let me start by uh, sort of <laughs> telling you a story that, that I think applies. This, this week I had to go to the post office. It was Tuesday. Uh, I went there to, uh, to pick up a package. Um, it's a long story. I was waiting for an overnight package that took like five days to get here. I had to go to the post office to, to try to pick it up. They couldn't find it. So all in all, my mission to pick up my package at the post office was a, was a failure, and I, I still carry a little bit of frustration about that. But, uh, but um, I did pick up a good sermon illustration while I was there, so it was not all, <laughs> all lost. Here's what happened. I, I, was, uh, I was standing in line. I was at the front of the line, and, um, and a man walks in uh, behind me, and, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to be, uh, I hate to, to, to judge in, in too much in advance without knowing him, but, but he seems to be, because of the way he behaved, one of those people who just says what they're thinking without filter. Um, and I think every time you go to the post office, there's usually one of these people in line because it was complaining about the post office, right? So he, he, he comes in and, and what I hear out of his mouth is, you know, oh, this is, this place has got to be the worst managed place in the whole world, you know, and he's just, he's doing that. So, so this, this individual is, I know, behind me in line. Um, and, and then, uh, I'm not, I'm not totally paying attention to what else is going on until I hear the next loud voice I hear is, is, a, is a voice of a woman with a, with a very thick Eastern European accent. So she's on the phone, and I can't, I can't really hear what she's saying, uh, except there every now and again I'm hearing the word Jesus. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's going on behind me. I know those two things. That's all I know. I'm at, I'm at the counter now, and I'm, and I'm dealing with the, the post office clerk in, until very loudly behind me I hear the eruption of these two fighting. I don't know what she said. I think it was something she said to whoever she was talking to on the phone and probably centered around the, the fact that she's talking about Jesus, I guess. But he, he says very much out loud, you can just take your proverbs and shove them you know where. To which she responded, you're going to hell. <laughs> and this just <laughs> unfolded to all kinds of chaos. And uh, you know, everybody's sort of freezing in the post office as this fight is ensuing and and you know you're hearing things like you know you you people are bullies who need to be confronted and all this stuff and whew, you know so here's the point what what transpired between these two and the fact that it invoked Jesus's name was very sadly no different than any other argument that you might expect to hear in the world. Um, but because it included Jesus' name, it was uglier, right? I mean, that was my take. And uh, it was disappointing. It was very disheartening for me and I think for all the other bystanders in the post office to, to witness that. And, and I said it's a sermon illustration because it applies to the text, I think, in, in this. The reminder of Romans 12 um, here is that we ought to relate to people differently 
because we're in Christ. It's going to change the way that we treat other people, both inside the church and outside of the church. And I don't, I don't, I, I really don't know where either of these two folks would fit in that category. I think I have a pretty good hint where one of them fits for sure. But, but, but Romans 12 is saying to the church, um, none of the way that you interact with people should look like that. But here's the hard-hitting reality. Too often it does. Right? I mean, as we, as we read through this text, I, I, and I've been you know, marinating in it all, all week plus, two weeks I guess now, um, it's convicting. Because too often the way that we relate to one another, or even just think about relating to one another, too often it looks like what I saw in the post office. Even for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. And if, if, you, if you want maybe further proof that that's too often the case, my, may I just suggest that you look at Facebook? I actually did that this week. And, uh, and I just sort of at random chose five of your Facebook accounts to show you what I'm talking about. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you. You knew I was kidding. I'm kidding. Let, let me ask you a question. On all seriousness, some of you just get nervous. I'm, I'm saying that seriously. Did, did some of you get nervous? I think, we should, I think some of us got nervous. And so it, it's, it, it's convicting. This is a needed text, all right? Um, let, me, let me reset the table, uh, because where Andy, Andy led us last week, uh, he said to us that, you know, chapters 12 and, and everything that follows is, is really important to grasp um, because we've reached a turning point in the book of Romans. If, if we were to sum up everything that we've, we've read so far from Romans 1 through Romans chapter 11, it could be summed up as basically this. This is what the gospel is. Okay, it's, it's, these are, these are statements that Paul's making. There's, there's application there, absolutely, but, but on, on the whole, it's, this is what the gospel is. This is how you believe it. This is how you receive it. And then we get to chapter 12 and the rest of the book, and, and we could say that it is, this is what the gospel does. Okay? This is what it is. Now we're moving into, this is what it does. And this is what the gospel-transformed life is going to look like on a day-to-day, on-the-ground level. And so Andy said, you know, what we're going to do is we'll title these sermons. We're going to start them all with gospel-transformed blank, because that's the point. Every, every subject we cover, it's how the gospel shapes the way we think about it and live it. Let me read to you the first two verses of chapter 12 again to remind you where we started last week. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And again, therefore means because of everything that's been said from chapters 1 to 11, this is what the gospel is and how you believe it and receive it. Because of that, brothers, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. Literally, it's, this is your reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, so in other words, the gospel's work in us is not only to save us from our sin, but to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. That's what it accomplishes in us. It saves us from our sin, but then it transforms us into the likeness of Jesus. And that transformation begins not just with a renewed heart. Jesus gives us a new heart when we come to him by faith, but it also happens with a renewed mind. A renewed mind. And, and again, this, it, it's, it's saying the gospel changes the way you think, it changes the way you see the world, and therefore it changes the way we live in it. And so in saying that, right out of the gate, notice what Paul does. He talks immediately about our relationships. He said that should be evident in your relationships. The gospel is going to change the way you think and live. Your relationships will show it, or they ought to show it. First, your relationship to God. That's verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, let your lives be lived out as a sacrifice to him. Right? Uh, let, let, let this relationship with him form you. But then verses three through the rest of the chapter then moves on to, and here's how it's going to change your relationship with others. And that makes sense, right? Because if we think about Jesus, and again, we're, we're being conformed into his likeness, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, another way of saying that is in, in him, we can live in accordance with the law. And what did Jesus say about the essence of the law? Do you remember? Matthew 27, or excuse me, Matthew 22, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Your relationship with God is the most important thing. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, your relationship with others. And, and he said this immediately after that. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the fulfillment of the law through our, our lives with new hearts and transformed thinking ought to first and foremost mean our relationship with God and other people are, are evidently different. Now, I know we just read verses 9 through 21, but I think it's important to read it all the way through one more time because we have to, we've, we've got to let this soak in. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, 
live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Relationship to people, both inside the church and outside the church. And those are our two main points this morning. We're going to look at both categories. And we're going to start where he starts with relationships with those inside the church. Uh, verses 9 through 13, and, and I think verse 15 and 16 fit into that category. How do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? And let me just start with the main idea, all right? Here's, I think, the main idea. It's this. It's love one another as Christ has loved you. Okay? Love one another as Christ has loved you, and that requires humility rather than selfishness. You could say that requires humility rather than pride, but I think pride and selfishness are pretty much the same thing. Okay? So if you get nothing else, just get that main idea. Love one another as Christ has loved you. That means humility, not selfishness. Verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. Genuine. Uh, we know what that means, right? It means no hypocrisy. It means not fake, not contrived or insincere. It means genuine, which means actually true. Okay? Let your love be true rather than phony rather than fake. Our understanding of love, in other words, needs to be rooted in the truth. Or to put it another way, we are, general, we are genuinely loving people when we're pointing them to what's true. It's interesting that uh, you look at the rest of the verse. He, he says right after that, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Abhor is a very strong word. It, it, it means hate. Hate What's evil cling to what is good. It, it seems kind of strange to use the word hate in a sentence about love, right? Whoa, we're talking about love. Why did all of a sudden you start talking about, about hate? And yet Paul says, no, that's, that's actually important to describe the actions of what true love looks like. Love hates the things that God calls evil. And it, it sticks like glue. That's the literal uh, meaning behind cling to. It sticks like glue to the things that God calls good. So when you love one another, you're gonna, you're gonna be treating one another in such a way that, that your aim is to, is to, is to give to one another, is to serve one another in ways that, that point you to the things that God loves and, and abhorring the things that God hates. Now that seems like an obvious thing to tell Christians to do. Do what's good, hate what's evil. But in reality, as we seek to live in fellowship with one another, it's an exceedingly difficult thing to do. Why is it exceedingly difficult? Because it means that we sometimes have to have hard conversations with one another. Right? And that's hard. That's hard. It means we have to sometimes talk to each other ab about sin and point away from it, hating what's evil and clinging to what's good. And that's not easy. It can be uncomfortable. 
And I think what Paul's doing here, and this is so good for us, especially I think, I, I can't speak to, to churches in, in past generations. I, I, didn't, I didn't participate in them. But I, I, I'm a participant of the 21st century American church. And I think this really applies to us. And it's this. I think Paul's making a distinction between politeness and real love. And I, and I think that's a big issue for us. We're, we're really good at being polite. But we're not necessarily really good at really loving one another. And here's the thing about politeness. I mean, politeness, is that, that sounds like a virtue. And often it is. There's nothing wrong with being polite. But politeness often serves as a veneer um, for hypocrisy. It says on the surface, I love you, but it really means I'm just going to smile and nod approvingly and not really give effort here, not really step in to walk with you. I'm not really going to sacrifice my time and my talent and my treasure for you. I'm not going to get dirty with you. I'm just going to politely nod and, and, and say, uh, hey, what's going on in your life? Oh, I'm I'm praying for you and I'll smile and I'll walk away. You're going to you're going to do what? You're telling me something that you're 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 involved in and and I know deep down it's not good for you. And I should say something to you out of love like don't go there. It's not good for you. But it, instead I'll I'll just say, "Oh, that's that's okay, I guess. And I walk away. I ignore it because I know it would be really uncomfortable for you and for me to really talk about it. But I'll just be polite. <clears throat> That's not love. That's really convicting for me. I, I think it's really convicting for all of us. That's not love. Remember... Verse 2, look back at it. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to the way the world thinks because the world doesn't think like that. We live in a world that values individual autonomy, we live in a world that values self-determination. So if a person's feelings or their emotions lead them to do something that makes them feel happy, it's deemed unloving to step in and say something. By the way, there's a, this is kind of an aside, but it, it relates to that. There was a, a, a really interesting article in the New York Times yesterday um, and I, I, have, I don't think it was written by, at least if it was written by a Christian, he didn't indicate that he was one. So I'm thinking, he's, he's sort of thinking from even the world's perspective that there's something wrong in our society when self-determination, self-actualization, you know, self-expression is valued over anything. Because he said, I, this is a very quotable quote, quote. He said this, I wrote it down. He said, next time people say, just be yourself, just be yourself. He says, stop them in their tracks. No one wants to hear everything that's in your head. They just want you to live up to what comes out of your mouth. Whew, that's good. Look that up. New York Times yesterday. Um, sorry, I totally got off on the side to say that. 
That's our world, right? Uh, it's deemed unloving to step in and say something when somebody is self-expressing. But the gospel compels us to think differently. Right? The gospel says, no, don't be conformed to the thinking ruled by the flesh, but rather be conformed, be made into the image of Christ who will love with truth. And here's what love does. Here's what genuine love does. Love seeks the best of its beloved. Right? It, it, it hates the evil that destroys its beloved. And it champions the good things that establish the beloved. Love is, love is doggedly committed to the, to the well-being of its object. Right? It's doggedly committed to that. Um, I, I don't know if, I, if I've ever experienced that more than, than when I became a parent. Right? There, as a parent, there's, there's so many times in which you, know, you see your kids doing something that you know is not good for them. And they're self-expressing. Right? But you, you know, like, no, if I'm, if I love, if I'm doggedly committed to their well-being, sometimes I'm going to stop them and say, don't do that. And it's not because I'm trying to squelch their self-expression. It's because I'm trying to love them. I'm trying to protect them and do what's best for them. That's love, right? And, and, and this is interesting that that's kind of the attitude that he goes right into with verse 10. Look back at the text. Love one another with brotherly affection. You know what he's saying? Your family. That's what he's saying. Your family. You, you treat your family differently than you treat your neighbor. Right? That's not to diminish how you treat your neighbor or the call to love your neighbor in any way, but it's a reality. You treat your family differently because you're doggedly committed to them in unique ways. There's a bond there that's special. They're family. You go the extra mile for your family. You're willing to say hard things to those in your family if it means health and safety and security for them. And Paul's saying, love each other like that. Your family. Your brethren. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. Why do we need to be reminded how to do that? I mean, I said earlier, it seems obvious that we, as Christians, we would say, absolutely. We ought to love one another. We ought to we gotta hate the things that are evil and cling to the things that are good. It's obvious stuff. Why do we need to be reminded to love one another genu genuinely? Because here's why. Verse two is a command. In other words, it's something that you have to, you have to work at. You have to obey. You have to actually step in and do it. It's something that you're in need of pursuing. I said earlier, God gives us new hearts. And he does. And if God didn't give us new hearts, we'd have no prayer in trying to obey anything. He gives us new hearts, but he calls us right here to renew our minds. You need to think differently. You need to believe what you've been told about what the gospel is, and it needs to, it needs to make you say, okay, I'm going to view things in a whole new light. And you pursue that. That's our role. In our sanctification, it's, it's the part that we play as we become more like Jesus. We have to learn to think like Jesus. That's what we're being told here. And it's hard work. It's a battle, right? It's a battle. And, and the battle we wage is ultimately against our own selfishness. 
It's a, it's a battle that we wage against our own pride because that's our root sin problem. We are sinners, and that's the root sin issue that, that Jesus has already forgiven. If you're in Christ, he's already forgiven it. Praise God for that, but you're still a sinner. <laughs> right? That's, that's, that's the tension we live in. This is the world that we still live in. We're still sinners, and selfishness is the root of all of that sin. You could also call it pride. I said before, I think they're basically communicating the same idea. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's I'm going to elevate my view of self, and I'm going to elevate my focus on self, and therefore I'm doing exactly the opposite of what it means to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, who said, as I fulfill the law, this is what it means, love God and others. Not self. In fact, I think he said deny self. I think he said take up your cross and follow me, which means die to self. Verse 15, look at this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. That means prideful. But associate with the lowly. These are commands. Don't do this, right? And do this. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Here's the obvious question that I'm asking myself as I'm, and I'm reading that and I'm trying to apply it to myself. I'm, I'm, I'm going, that's hard. It's actually hard. It sounds good. I know it sounds good. And this is really embarrassing to admit. That's hard. I don't want to do that all the time. Why don't I want to rejoice with those who rejoice? Why don't I want to weep with those who weep? You know why? Because I'm selfish. And, and here's what happens. To rejoice with those who rejoice means that I'm really glad that something good happened to you. And I might be living in a reality, current reality, where I'm thinking that good thing didn't happen to me and I wish it did. So I'm going to rejoice with you Deep down, I'm just jealous. Right? Weep with those who weep. Well, the last time I got hurt, nobody weeped with me. Nobody weeped with me, so, hey, you didn't do it for me. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We, I mean, that sounds really bad to say out loud, doesn't it? That's what happens in our hearts. We're selfish. And yet, here's what, what Paul says to that. He says, no, don't do that. You, you need to actually be proactive about just laying down self and seeking the better, the good of your brother or sister. Rejoice when God does something good for them. Simply because you love them. Regardless of what that means for you, you love them. And weeping and all that stuff. And, and here's what Paul says. He says, live in harmony with one another. And, and, and I, I, had to, I had to kind of wrestle with that one because I think when I hear that, because of our cultural assumptions, our, our cultural bents, when I hear live in harmony with one another, I think that all that really means for me, here's as far as I, as I want to take it, is um, just get along with people. Live in harmony with one another means tolerate other people. No, it does not mean tolerate other people. We think it means tolerate other people. And so we feel better about ourselves when we're, well, we're willing to tolerate them. I've fulfilled that one. It's not what it means. Live in harmony 
with one another with one another means this. It means live in oneness with other people. Don't just tolerate them. Don't just get along with them. You live in oneness, in common-mindedness with them. I'm not much of a musician, but if, I, if you asked a musician and, and said, what, what does it mean to harmonize? I don't think they'd mean, it just means to, that two instruments tolerate each other. They say, no, they complement each other to work together to create something beautiful. Paul says that's the way that believers are to live with one another in harmony. The key to transformation, the key to, to, to genuine love then, is a Jesus-focused denial of myself. Notice the similar language used in, in Philippians 2, and I, I want to encourage you to even turn there. Keep your finger here in Romans, but you can flip over to Philippians 2, and I should have written down the page number. I have a different Bible than you do now. So if somebody gets there, yell out the page number. That would be helpful for everybody else. 980. You got there faster than I did. Good for you. Awana. <laughs> okay. I want you to hear the similar language from Romans 12 to Philippians 2, but here's, here's why we're going to Philippians 2. I think he fills it out more in Philippians 2. Jesus-focused self-denial, being transformed into what Jesus looks like, forms the way we treat one another. Verse 1 of Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. In other words, if you're a Christian, this is for you. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. The same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do you hear the similar language there? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is what Jesus thought like. Think the same way, and then act on it. Here's what Jesus did. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You know the difference between Jesus and you? Jesus had every reason to be prideful. You don't. You are not equal, equality, I was going to say. You are not equal with God. He was, and yet even still, he didn't regard that a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself. And Paul's saying, think like that. Act like that. When we think like Jesus, we act like Jesus. And our self-emptying pursuit of Him frees us to love others as Christ has loved us. That's the other thing we need to grasp out of that Philippians 2 text. He did that for you. And because He did that for you, the call is to be like that, to do that for others. You can. Because He's already done it for you. Verse 10. We read the first part of it. Let's read the, the remainder here. After he says, love one another with brotherly affection, he gives, some, he gives some clarity to what that means. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. 
Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't be lazy about this. You're going to be tempted to be lazy about this. You're going to be tempted to be selfish. Selfishness breeds laziness. Don't do that. Actually, be zealous. Remember he talked about uh, zeal without knowledge earlier? We talked about what that means. That's fanaticism. It's bad. Zeal without knowledge causes people to, to, to do all kinds of religious crazy stuff that's totally separate from the gospel. And then he says, no, but you have, a, you have a zeal with knowledge. And here's the application of the zeal that you have coupled with the knowledge of the gospel means that you're fervently serving each other. You're fervently loving one another. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. You read that sentence by itself and, and it sounds like it's something that he's saying for you to do in your own individual life. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in your trials, your tribulations. Be constant in prayer. And that's all true. But he's saying this in the context of how we treat other people. Right? So I think it, what he's saying here is this. is Rejoice in the hope with other people. Rejoice in their hope. Point them back to the hope that we have. Sometimes they're going to go through trials and tribulations. Be patient with them and point them back to the rejoicing of the hope that we have and constantly pray. I'm, you know, one of the hardest things for, for, for me to do, and I have to remind myself of this, I am a messenger. Because I, I read stuff like this and I think, how can I get up and preach that when I don't live that out perfectly? Only by God's grace. Uh, this is the authority right now, not the guy who's talking. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to, to show hospitality. Um, meet needs. That's what it means to love one another selflessly. And it doesn't say be open to hospitality. Like when somebody calls and they say, oh, I, I really don't have a, a place to go. So-and-so really needs a, a roof over their head or a meal today. Don't just be open to it. It means seek it. It means that you should be looking for those opportunities yourself and going after giving to them. That's strong language. Main idea. Love one another as Christ has loved you. Isn't that what Jesus has done for us? And it requires humility rather than selfishness or pride. That's what it means to love one another in the church. I told you that there's also, I think, some language here that talks about how the gospel shapes our relationships with those outside of the church. And that's the, that's the second point here. How the gospel shapes our relationships outside the church. And, and you look at verse 14 and it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, is it possible for those inside the church to persecute? It, it is possible, but I, I think this is hinting now that we're also thinking about broader relationships here. He's moving from relationships with our brothers to those with, actually, our enemies. Right? Those who persecute you. How do you, how do you treat your, your enemies? We're going to look down at verse 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil. Right? Um, don't repay your enemy if your enemy is hungry. So you're talking about enemies here. So if you thought the first point was challenging, you thought that was convicting, how we treat each other, I got good news for you. It gets worse. This is a tough one too. 
Now, let me, let me say this up front. Obviously, talking about enemies is relationships outside of the church, I hope. But let's be clear that not every relationship outside the church is an enemy. Okay? That's not, I don't think that's what he's trying to convey at all. Some of them will be, though. You think about the context that he's writing to. He's writing to Rome. He's never been to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. Do you remember how he got there? In prison. Not a good environment for the believers who are living there. So this is, this is something that they have to be thinking about when they think about those outside the church. They're probably thinking about hostile relationships. Here's the main idea. Regard your enemies as Christ has regarded you. And that requires service rather than retaliation. Regard your enemies as Christ has regarded you. This requires service rather than retaliation. Bless those who persecute. Okay, bless is not passive language. Right? It is, it is active. It's not, it's, it's not phony. It's genuine love. Just like we started with in verse nine. I think that's still sort of the, the theme that, that sort of, uh, covers this entire text. It's the thrust of the text here. Blessing someone is to seek the best for them. Right? I'll explain what that, that looks like in, in, in a minute, but that, that's basically what it means. Seek their best. Don't curse them. Seek their best. Why does he have to remind us of that? Why is it so hard not to retaliate when we feel wronged by the world, especially in persecution? Now, I want you to get this because here's, here's the hard application. Why is it so hard to do that. Here's why. Because we erroneously believe that we're somehow entitled to the world's respect. We erroneously believe that we are entitled to the world's respect. And that's the first half of the problem. Here's the second half. Because we feel entitled to respect, we subsequently feel entitled to fight back when we don't get it. I think I just summed up pretty much the basis for the culture wars in 20th and 21st century America, right? We're entitled to the world's respect, and when we don't get it, we're entitled to fight back. And that's happening on both sides. Here's what we wish verse 14 said. Okay? Here's what we wish it said. We wish it said, expose those who persecute you. Expose them. Right? Shame those who persecute you. Blast them with the truth. Which is probably why some of you got nervous when I said something about Facebook. Paul says, no, bless them. Exposing, we're not, we're blessing those who persecute. You're seeking their welfare, not their demise. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought, again, thinking here, right? Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let me, let me just explain, I think, what, what he's getting at here, because Paul wrote this, he wrote 
Philippians, which we looked at earlier, he wrote Ephesians. I think he's, he's consistently applying his gospel rubric here. And he says in Ephesians 6, he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against spiritual forces of evil. Right? So here he's saying, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate against the flesh and blood when they exhibit evil. Bless them. Seek their welfare, not their demise, because our battle is not against them. It's the evil behind them. Um, I'm trying to remember where I, where I read this, and I, I'm thinking it's, it's Chesterton, but I might be wrong, so don't quote me quoting him. I'm pretty sure Tolkien talks about this idea too in the Lord of the Rings. But here's, here's the gist. If evil is the enemy and evil is acting in such a way to bring about its dominion in our lives, if we fight back evil with evil, we've actually added to the evil in the world rather than diminished it, which is totally pointless. I think that's kind of what he's getting at here. Right? You, in other words, you might win the argument, but you're totally losing the war. You might have zinged them on Facebook, but you've lost the war. Because we're called to be light in the darkness, not evil upon evil. And you say, well, that makes sense to me, but it's really difficult to read Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What if I'm trying to do that and it's not bringing peace? I'm trying to do that with my spouse and it's not working. My kids, it's not working. I'm trying to do that in my small group, it's not working. Well, that's a good question. But the call here is that as far as it depends on you, bless. And trust in the grace of God that He's blessed you and that His blessing on you outweighs the difficult but temporal suffering of the world. That's all He gives us. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, so we've, we've, we've kind of looked at a lot of what we shouldn't do. What should we do? What does it look like to overcome evil with good? Look at verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Right, the last half of that verse is a little tricky to understand. Let's set that on the shelf for 30 seconds. Let's just tackle the obvious. What's he saying? What's the opposite of retaliation that we're called to do? Service. Give them something. Bless them. Food. Drink. Bless them. Serve them. Love them. That's what Jesus has done for us. Regard your enemy as Jesus has regarded you. And it requires service 
rather than retaliation. Now, he doesn't go into a whole explanation of that here, but again, he doesn't have to. He said, therefore, at the beginning, and he's he's saying, remember, we've talked about this for 11 chapters. And in chapter 5, if you want to just flip over there real quick, he talked about this. This is what Jesus has done for you. This is what he says. For if while we were enemies, this is Romans 5 verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. There there it is. Full stop, right? You were an enemy. He died for you. He served you. And He did that to bless you because you were reconciled to God because of it. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He served us. So that's really obvious. He's just saying, serve them. Serve them. Serve them. They go, what's this whole heaping coals on their head business? That almost sounds like you're serving with an ulterior motive. All right, I'll serve them because they're going to get it. Um, that's not what he's saying. And we can go to Romans 2, I think, to understand what he's saying. By the way, I, 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 think, it's, I think we can summarize it. We'll get, we'll get to Romans 2 here, and this is what it's going to tell us, that, that there's a healing motive here. All right? Not a hurtful motive. There's a healing motive on our part. Um, I read somewhere, no, I didn't read it. I was, I was t- taught it actually by a pastor when I was a teenager that this idea of heaping coals on, on, on the head was pointing back to an ancient practice where homeless, needy, destitute folks would walk around in the cold with, with a pot on their head. And as they walked by windows of, of homes, people could take extra coals out of their fire and place it in the pot. And it would, it would warm them. And that sounds really beautiful. The problem is, is I've looked in and I find no evidence that that's true. What, I, what the evidence is, is that this, this kind of language used in Scripture always points back to the judgment of God. All right? Um, flip to Romans 2. You probably did already. I said that a minute ago. Oh, you didn't. I hear your pages wrestling. Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard heart, your impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So when he says here, feed the hungry enemy, give drink to the thirsty enemy, for by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. And right before that, it says, um, Don't repay evil for evil, but it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What's being said here is it's God's prerogative to judge the wicked. 
and he will. But his kindness, again, towards you, was meant to lead you to repentance. So you can trust that if your enemy persists in wicked doing, God will judge. That's God's prerogative. But again, love them like Jesus loved you. Show kindness with the hope that kindness leads to repentance. Bless them and don't curse them. And leave the result to God. We have no right to pronounce judgment on our enemies. We can recognize evil for what it is, but our call is to serve. Regard your enemies as Christ has regarded you. That's the main idea. And it means service, not retaliation. Now that's, that's the meaning of verses 9 through 21. But I want to I end with just a couple of minutes of, of an important point that we have to, we have to end with. All right? Because what I've said so far, based on what's just here in verses 9 to 21, is we're to look like Jesus, right? We're to think like Him and therefore act like Him. So act like Jesus. And here's the last thing we need to recognize. Jesus, although is, He's our model, He's not just our model. He's our security. Here's what I mean by that. This is really important because if we, if we miss this, we miss the whole heart of Romans and the whole heart of the Bible. Um, this, this right now, this ending to this sermon is the difference between a moralistic sermon and a gospel-centered sermon. So far, we've been motivated by a desire to look like Jesus, to act like Jesus. That's a great desire, but on its own, it's powerless because it's a work of the flesh to just act like Jesus. Christ just isn't a model for us to emulate. He's our ultimate security and the power to succeed through grace-driven effort by faith. By faith. And again, that's all of Romans 1-11 through informing what I just said. But verse 17 of chapter 1 probably sums it up best. I thought maybe I had it up there, but I don't. I have right, what's written right before it up there, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, also to the Gentile, to the Greek, to the nations. Here's the, here's the key verse right after that. The righteous, those who've been made right by this gospel, shall live by faith. What is faith? Faith is humble dependence on Christ that says He is everything. He's everything. Okay? So I'm not just emulating Jesus. I'm believing when the call to love my brother genuinely is given to me. I'm believing that I can do that. 
I can be selfless in that regard. I can put pride on the shelf when I'm called to do that because Jesus is my everything. I have nothing to gain or lose in my transactions with other people. I'm not trying to get righteous. I'm not trying to, to, to work past my selfishness through the efforts of the flesh. I already have everything in Christ. He's my sufficiency. He's my righteousness. He's my salvation. He's the reason why God already can look at me and say, I'm well pleased with you. You're a son. It's why I can go to my enemy and not fight back because I have rights to defend. I don't, I don't need to. I don't need to. Every need I have has been met in Jesus Christ. He's the power and security that I have and need to be able to say, I can love you. I can serve you. I don't need anything from you. I don't need anything from you. But I want to give myself to you. Because Jesus gave himself to me. See the difference? Not just a model. Power. Because of the gospel. So with that said, church, love one another genuinely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this passage so directly confronts our hearts and encourages us to, to what you've remade us to look like in Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you've remade us to look like this, that, that again, you are the power of transformation in our lives, that we can look like this. That not only we look like this, we can experience the benefit of it, Lord. What, a, what do we want? We want to live in a, in a body of people who love us and whom we can love and that's a wonderful benefit lord of the gospel and the unity that we have in it as a church as your people it's a wonderful benefit to know that we can actually contribute to the good of our world and not contribute to the chaos of it lord you've done that in us but you've you've told us it happens when you think differently because of what's true in the gospel. So help us to believe it and apply it. Help us to see everything through the lens of it. We don't need anything from the world. We're called to just give ourselves to it like you. Help us to apply that. Help us to live it for your glory.